I speak to you today in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, since before humans can remember, the Colorado River has run its course from its soaring origin in the Rocky Mountains to a once teeming two million acre delta, finally emptying 14 million acre feet of fresh water into the Sea of Cortez. And I've fished this river. It is glorious. Some of you, I'm sure, have seen it as well. It is referred to as the Nile of North America. The Colorado River is the arid west's lifeline. It provides water to more than 30 million Americans, including people in cities like Phoenix and Los Angeles and Denver, over a hundred dams and thousands of miles of canals divert the river to nearly every farm, industry, and city within a 250-mile radius of its banks. It is one of the most diverted and dammed rivers in the world. And so the net effect of this is that a multitude of straws are drinking from the river, which has been put on full display in a documentary I watched several years back. The producer wanted to document that the Colorado River Delta is a testament of what happens when we ask too much of a limited resource. He said, it disappears. In fact, the Colorado River has not reached the Sea of Cortez since 1998, but it ends Instead, in a cracked and desolate expanse of barren mudflats and abandoned boats, it is, in the words of the man who made the documentary, a dry river cemetery of thousands of acres that once were teeming with lush life and some of the most incredible biodiversity in the world now turned into a desert. You see, when rivers are tapped from too many sources, when they are diverted away both from their source and their end, their goal, they cease to exist. This is all another way of saying that not all rivers reach the sea. And of course, I'm not just talking about rivers today. As the river longs for the ocean, so our soul longs for eternity, for the infinite. Human desire is made for the infinite, and restlessness comes from seeking to satisfy our desire in things that are not eternal, that are not infinite. Because our desire is infinite for infinite things, we continue to desire, usually pointing our desire towards those things that by definition cannot satisfy. They are finite, and so a vicious cycle is created. And when this happens, we tend to respond in one of two ways. We deny our desires. We starve our souls. At best, we learn moderation. At worst, we end up calling good things bad and judge those who enjoy them in moderation. Or, secondly, we give in to our desires. We give in to the goods that are actually lesser than God, that cannot carry the weight of our desire, which is infinite and eternal, aimed at the divine 
The global marketing industry knows this. They have learned how to monetize our restlessness. We see this across social media platforms. And we love it. But the question is, are we flourishing? Are we less anxious? Are we more whole? Neither of these approaches will lead ultimately to the life that God desires for us. There was an African bishop from the fourth century named Augustine who once wrote a famous line, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Or in the words of the great Oxford professor C.S. Lewis, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. In other words, our desires are for the eternal. Jesus knows this. In the Gospel of Matthew, we see a scene of the busyness of life and ministry even amidst and in the presence of Jesus. The apostles and the disciples have been running around, doing good, living their lives, walking with Jesus, bringing healing into the lives of people, caring for the sick, proclaiming the good news. They are excited about all that is happening for the Messiah, but he calls them and he calls us back to himself, saying, come to me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, rest, what our souls desire. Listen to how Pastor Eugene Peterson translates this in the message. I don't always quote from this translation, but it's quite good. He says, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live lightly and freely, this Jesus says. Sounds awesome, doesn't it? (laughs) And yet. And yet an article came out some years ago entitled, The Average American Worker Takes Less Vacation Time Than a Medieval Peasant. I mean, of course, we don't have the black plague, so that's a fair trade. But rest does seem elusive to us, doesn't it? You might have heard the phrase that was coined not too long ago by a psychologist called hurry sickness. Hurry sickness. One psychological manual defines it as a behavior pattern characterized by continual rushing and anxiousness and overwhelming and a continual sense of urgency. If that isn't bad enough, it's also defined as a malaise in which a person feels chronically short of time and so tends to perform every task faster and get flustered even when encountering any kind of delay. Sound familiar? I've certainly experienced that. So the question for us is, how do we enter into the rest that Jesus promises us? 
Jesus has given us a clue in our passage. Children, infants, children are truly dependent, truly dependent. They are living sacramental signs reminding us of what dependence on the Father looks like. I mean, sometimes we wish they were more independent, but... They draw our eyes into the principle, I think, that Jesus seeks to highlight here. Dependence. We are not the source of our own rest. We need this reminder. We need to learn how to rest in Christ as he shows us how to walk, how to work, how to rest in the Father. Our staff here knows that my personal theme this year is an unhurried life. (laughs) How's it going? Well, there are both wins and losses. We'll just say that. I need the humility of a child. I so often lack it. Perhaps that's true for you as well. How do we take on this humility of the child? The text tells us. We take on those patterns that have come from the past, that have come before us. In other words, we learn how to practice Sabbath. Shabbat is the Hebrew word for Sabbath, and it can mean several things, but it most simply means to stop. Just stop. Stop. We know that Matthew intends for us to connect the rest that Jesus offers with Sabbath rest because the next two stories that follow this passage are all about the Sabbath. First, the Pharisees rebuke Jesus because his disciples are out for a walk and they're plucking the grains off the wheat On the Sabbath, they were hungry, the text tells us. And then secondly, the Pharisees decry Jesus' lack of apparent faithfulness because he heals a man on the Sabbath. And what the Pharisees have forgotten is that, as it turns out, nourishment and healing are essential components of what the Sabbath was about in the first place. Wholeness. They've misunderstood the true nature of Sabbath. The rest that God desires is one to bring to us, to our families, our friends, our community, the land, both nourishment and healing, precisely what is found in both of those stories. You see, Sabbath rest starts and ends in walking with Jesus, but it requires us to stop, to slow down, to delight to give thanks, to let our desires find their end, their fulfillment in Jesus. So where do we start? In his book entitled The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, which I highly recommend, the author and pastor John Mark Comer identifies the following 10 practices, which if you go back in history and look at spiritual masters, all of them or almost all of them recommend these 10 practices. Don't worry, I'll go through them quickly. First, we stop and we pray. In fact, we could put the word stop in front of every single one of these. First, we pray. Second, we feast. We feast. Third, we read scripture or poetry or more. Fourth, we sing. Now notice, those first four all happen on Sunday morning in worship. Fifth, for those inside the covenant of marriage... We make love. That might be controversial to say. But the Talmud actually commends married couples to do this on the Sabbath. 
Some of you just became much more interested in Sabbath keeping. (laughs) We go for a walk, six. We take a nap. We spend time intentionally with family or close friends receiving the gift of their presence. We spend time alone in stillness. And finally, we learn intentional practices of gratitude. We're kicking off our stewardship campaign today. And the theme is, thanks be to God. The very last words we say as we we walk out today. There's a reason we say that. We end on that note. Thanks be to God. Our generosity properly flows out of gratitude for the God who has been infinitely generous towards us. But notice, each of these requires us to stop and to attend to God. We will not be a good father or mother, teacher, employee, or neighbor, coach, a good human even, if we are dried up and spent, if our anger and our bitterness and our anxiety and our fears are spilling over out onto those who are closest to us, in fact, it will be hard for them to imagine that the gospel is real to us. It will be hard for our neighbors to imagine that we take Jesus' command to love God and love neighbor seriously if we're not good neighbors to them, too. So do you want to know the dirty little secret? Here it is. Many churches run off of overworked people. Volunteers, clergy, staff, To be clear, in case there's any ambiguity around this point here, this should not be so. And it's not the desire of any of your clergy, myself included, for this parish. Our desire is that we might, together as a community, step more deeply into rhythms of rest to learn how to take on the yoke of Christ to enter into the rest that he promises is available to each of us. So when we talk about Sabbath rhythms, we're not talking about doing more for Jesus. Actually, we're talking about doing more with Jesus in the presence of the God who is already eternally present to us if we have eyes to see. Living under his yoke of rest. Rivers, you know, are designed to rush to the ocean in a perpetual cycle of evaporation and condensation and flow towards their goal, towards the river's very source of life, then and only then can it be good for others. Rivers spill into the sea to rest a while, to lose themselves in currents of grace and power, and by a miracle of God, In losing themselves, they truly find themselves again. You might be glad to know that the Colorado River has reached the Sea of Cortez again as the United States and Mexico several years back entered into an agreement to release water back into the river in what they call a pulse fashion. This mimics the spring rains and the snow that's melting off of the mountains. And you know what happened? the estuary revivified. The biodiversity is slowly returning. The river is healing. You see, rivers that have dried up can be restored. But to do this, 
They need to be nourished by their source and to reach their goal, their fulfillment, their end. And of course, this is not just true for rivers.